I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, that little podcast about the upper Madawaska River Valley, a place like no other, with a unique heritage and culture all its own. We're not exactly your typical global village here in Barry's Bay, Ontario, but we're definitely very much citizens of this often wacky world. Today, I'm joined by Leslie Betts, Kathy Chapesky, and Carol Peterson, all members of the Apiongo Readers Theatre, and all here to help us celebrate not only the coming of 2021, but we are also here to help celebrate one of our favourite authors, Lucy Maud Montgomery. To many people the world over, Ms. Montgomery is that famous Canadian author of Anne of Green Gables, but to us here at the Apiongo Readers Theatre, she also has a much-deserved reputation for being one of the most prolific and interesting short story writers of all time. She penned more than 500 short stories, even more than one of our other favorite classic writers of world literature, Guy de Maupassant, and, who like him, seems to have a story for every occasion. Indeed, we found five of Lucy Maud Montgomery's best short tales, all involving New Year's. We thought they would make a wonderful way to while away the next hour or so as we await the coming of 2021 amidst our latest COVID-19 lockdown here in Ontario, Canada. So time now to forget about all those pandemic trials and tribulations, and especially all those other problems that this wicked old world has thrown our way during 2020. Rather, it's time instead to take note of the lucky triumphs and hard-won successes of those plucky young heroines who always seem to overcome life's passing troubles and who so happily people Lucy Maud Montgomery's vivid Canadian imagination. Here is the first of her five New Year's tales, this one taken from Montgomery's novel, The Golden Road, published in 1913. It's called New Year's Resolutions, and it's about a group of curious schoolgirls all determined to improve themselves in the new year. It's read by Leslie Betts. If we did not have a white Christmas, we had a white new year. Midway between the two came a heavy snowfall. It was winter in our orchard of old delights then. So truly winter that it was hard to believe summer had ever dwelt in it or that spring would ever return to it. There were no birds to sing the music of the moon and the paths where the apple blossoms had fallen were heaped with less fragrant drifts. But it was a place of wonder on a moonlight night when the snowy arcades shone like avenues of ivory and crystal and the bare trees cast fairy-like traceries upon them. Over Uncle Stephen's walk, where the snow had fallen smoothly, a spell of white magic had been woven. Taintless and wonderful, it seemed, like a street of pearl in the New Jerusalem. On New Year's Eve, we were all together in Uncle Alec's kitchen, which was tacitly given over to our revels during the winter evenings. The story girl and Peter were there, of course, and Sarah Ray's mother had allowed her to come up on condition that she should be home by eight sharp. Cecily was glad to see her, but the boys never hailed her arrival with overmuch delight because since the dark began to come down early, Aunt Janet always made one of us walk down home with her. We hated this because Sarah Ray was always so maddeningly self-conscious of having an escort. We knew perfectly well that next day in school she'd tell her chums as a dead secret that so-and-so King saw her home from the Hill Farm the night before. Now, seeing the young lady home from choice and being sent home with her by your aunt or mother are two entirely different things, and we thought Sarah Ray ought to have sense enough to know it. 
Outside, there was a vivid rose of sunset behind the cold hills of fir, and the long reaches of snowy fields glowed fairly pink in the western light. The drifts along the edges of the meadows and down the lane looked as if a series of breaking waves had, by the lifting of a magician's wand, been suddenly transformed into marble, even to their toppling curls of foam. Slowly the splendor died, giving place to the mystic beauty of a winter twilight when the moon is rising. The hollow sky was a cup of blue. The stars came out over the white glens, and the earth was covered with a kingly carpet for the feet of the young year to press. I'm so glad the snow came, said the story girl. If it hadn't, the new year would have seemed just as dingy and worn out as the old. There's something very solemn about the idea of a new year, isn't there? Just think of 365 whole days with not a thing happened in them yet. I don't suppose anything very wonderful will happen in them, said Felix pessimistically. To Felix just then, life was flat, stale, and unprofitable because it was his turn to go home with Sarah Ray. It makes me a little frightened to think of all that may happen in them, said Cecily. Miss Marwood says that it's what we put into a year, not what we get out of it, that counts at last. I'm always glad to see a new year, said the story girl. I wish we could do as they do in Norway. The whole family sits up until midnight, and then just as the clock is striking twelve, the father opens the door and welcomes the new year in. Isn't it a pretty custom? If Ma would let us stay up till twelve, we might do that too, said Dan. But she never will. I call it mean. If I ever have children, I'll let them stay up to watch the new year in, said the story girl decidedly. So will I, said Peter, but other nights they'll have to go to bed at seven. You ought to be ashamed speaking of such things, said Felicity with a scandalized face. Peter shrank into the background abashed, no doubt believing that he had broken some family guide precept all to pieces. I didn't know it wasn't proper to mention children, he muttered apologetically. We ought to make some New Year's resolutions, suggested the story girl. New Year's Eve is the time to make them. I can't think of any resolutions I want to make, said Felicity, who was perfectly satisfied with herself. I could suggest a few to you, said Dan sarcastically. There are so many I would like to make, said Cecily, that I'm afraid it wouldn't be any use trying to keep them all. Well, let's make a few just for the fun of it and see if we can keep them, I said. And let's get paper and ink and write them out. That'll make them seem more solemn and binding. And then pin them up in our bedroom walls, where we'll see them every day, suggested the story girl. And every time we break a resolution, we must put a cross opposite it. That will show us what progress we're making, as well as make us ashamed if we have too many crosses. And let's have a roll of honor in our magazine, suggested Felix. And every month we'll publish the names of those who keep the resolutions perfect. I think it's all nonsense, said Felicity. But she joined our circle around the table, though she sat for a long time with a blank sheet before her. Let's each make a resolution in turn, I said. I'll lead off. And recalling with shame certain unpleasant differences of opinion I had lately with Felicity, I wrote down in my best hand, I shall try to keep my temper always. You'd better, said Felicity tactfully. It was Dan's turn next. I can't think of anything to start with, he said, gnawing his penholder fiercely. You might make a resolution not to eat poison berries, suggested Felicity. You'd better make one not to nag people everlastingly, retorted Dan. Oh, don't quarrel the last night of the old year, implored Cecily. You might resolve not to quarrel any time, suggested Sarah Ray. 
No, sir, said Dan emphatically. There's no use making a resolution you can't keep. There are people in this family you've just got to quarrel with if you want to live. But I've thought of one. I won't do things to spite people. Felicity, who really was in an unbearable mood that night, laughed disagreeably. But Cecily gave her a fierce nudge, which probably restrained her from speaking. I will not eat any apples, wrote Felix. What on earth do you want to give up eating apples for? asked Peter in astonishment. Never mind, returned Felix. Apples make people fat, you know, said Felicity sweetly. It seems kind of a funny resolution, I said doubtfully. I think our resolutions ought to be giving up wrong things or doing right ones. You make your resolutions to suit yourself and I'll make mine to suit myself, said Felix defiantly. I shall never get drunk, wrote Peter painstakingly. But you never do, said the story girl in astonishment. Well, it'll be all the easier to keep the resolution, argued Peter. That isn't fair, complained Dan. If we all resolved not to do the things we never do, we'd all be on the roll of honor. You let Peter alone, said Felicity severely. It's a very good resolution and one everybody ought to make. I shall not be jealous, wrote the story girl. But are you? I asked surprised. The story girl colored and nodded. Of one thing, she confessed, but I'm not going to tell what it is. I'm jealous sometimes too, confessed Sarah Ray. And so my first resolution will be, I shall try not to feel jealous when I hear the other girls in school describing all the sick spells they've had. Goodness, do you want to be sick? Demanded Felix in astonishment. It makes a person important, explained Sarah Ray. I am going to try to improve my mind by reading good books and listening to older people, wrote Cecily. You've got that out of the Sunday school paper, cried Felicity. It doesn't matter where I got it, said Cecily with dignity. The main thing is to keep it. It's your turn, Felicity, I said. Felicity tossed her beautiful golden head. I told you I wasn't going to make any resolutions. Go on yourself. I shall always study my grammar lesson, I wrote. I, who loathed grammar with a deadly loathing. I hate grammar too, sighed Sarah Ray. It seems so unimportant. Sarah was rather fond of a big word, but did not always get hold of the right one. I rather suspected that in the above instance, she really meant uninteresting. I won't get mad at Felicity if I can help it, wrote Dan. I'm sure I never do anything to make you mad, exclaimed Felicity. I don't think it's polite to make resolutions about your sisters, said Peter. He can't keep it anyway, scoffed Felicity. He's got such an awful temper. It's a family failing, flashed Dan, breaking his resolution ere the ink on it was dry. There you go, taunted Felicity. I'll work all my arithmetic problems without any help, scribbled Felix. I wish I could resolve that too, sighed Sarah Ray, but it wouldn't be any use. I'd never be able to do those compound multiplication sums the teacher gives us to do at home every night if I didn't get Judy Pino to help me. Judy isn't a good reader, and she can't spell at all. But you can't stick her in arithmetic as far as she went herself. I feel sure, concluded poor Sarah in a hopeless tone, that I'll never be able to understand compound multiplication. Multiplication is vexation. Division is as bad. The rule of three perplexes me, and fractions drive me mad, quoted Dan. I haven't got as far as fractions yet, sighed Sarah, and I hope I'll be too big to go to school before I do. I hate arithmetic. 
but I'm passionately fond of geography. I will not play tit-tat-x on the fly-leaves of my hymn book in church, wrote Peter. Mercy, did you ever do such a thing? exclaimed Felicity in horror. Peter nodded shamefacedly. Yes, that Sunday Mr. Bailey preached. He was so long-winded. I got awful tired, and anyway, he was talking about things I couldn't understand. So I played tit-tat-x with one of the Markdale boys. It was the day I was sitting up in the gallery. Well, I hope if you ever do the like again, you won't do it in our pew, said Felicity severely. I ain't gonna do it at all, said Peter. I felt sort of mean all the rest of the day. I shall try not to be vexed when people interrupt me when I'm telling stories, wrote the story girl. But it will be hard, she added with a sigh. I never mind being interrupted, said Felicity. I shall try to be cheerful and smiling all the time, wrote Cecily. You are anyway, said Sarah Ray loyally. I don't believe we ought to be cheerful all the time, said the story girl. The Bible says we ought to weep with those who weep. But maybe it means we're to weep cheerfully, suggested Cecily. Sort of as if you were thinking, I'm very sorry for you, but I'm mighty glad I'm not in the scrape too, said Dan. Dan, don't be irreverent, rebuked Felicity. I know a story about old Mr. and Mrs. Davidson of Markdale, said the story girl. She was always smiling, and it used to aggravate her husband. So one day he said very crossly, Old lady, what are you grinning at? Oh, well, Abram, everything's so bright and pleasant, I've just got a smile. Not long after, there came a time when everything went wrong. The crop failed and their best cow died, and Mrs. Davidson had rheumatism. And finally, Mr. Davidson fell and broke his leg. But still, Mrs. Davidson smiled. What in the dickens are you grinning about now, old lady? he demanded. Oh, well, Abram, she said. Everything is so dark and unpleasant, I've just got a smile. Well, said the old man crossly, I think you might give your face a rest sometimes. I shall not talk gossip, wrote Sarah Ray with a satisfied air. Oh, don't you think that's a little too strict? asked Cecily anxiously. Of course, it's not right to talk mean gossip, but the harmless kind doesn't hurt. If I say to you that Emmy McPhail is going to get a new fur collar this winter, that is harmless gossip. But if I say I don't see how Emmy McPhail can afford a new fur collar when her father can't pay my father for the oats he got from him, that would be mean gossip. If I were you, Sarah, I'd put mean gossip. Sarah consented to this amendment. I will be polite to everybody, was my third resolution, which passed without comment. I'll try not to use slang, since Cecily doesn't like it, wrote Dan. I think some slang is real cute, said Felicity. The family guys said it's very vulgar, grinned Dan. Doesn't it, Sarah Stanley? Don't disturb me, said the story girl dreamily. I'm just thinking a beautiful thought. I've thought of a resolution to make, cried Felicity. Mr. Marwood said last Sunday we should always try to think beautiful thoughts, and then our lives would be very beautiful. So I shall resolve to think a beautiful thought every morning before breakfast. Can you only manage one a day? queried Dan. And why before breakfast? I asked. Because it's easier to think on an empty stomach, said Peter, in all good faith. But Felicity shot a furious glance at him. 
I selected that time, she explained with dignity, because when I'm brushing my hair before my glass in the morning, I'll see my resolution and remember it. Mr. Marwood meant that all our thoughts ought to be beautiful, said the story girl. If they were, people wouldn't be afraid to say what they think. They oughtn't to be afraid anyhow, said Felix stoutly. I'm going to make a resolution to say just what I think always. And do you expect to get through the year alive if you do, asked Anne. It might be easy enough to say what you think if you could always be sure just what you do think, said the story girl. So often, I can't be sure. How would you like it if people always just said what they think to you, said Felicity. I'm not very particular what some people think of me, rejoined Felix. I notice you don't like to be told by anybody that you're fat, retorted Felicity. Oh, dear me, I do wish you wouldn't all say such sarcastic things to each other, said poor Cecily plaintively. It sounds so horrid the last night of the old year. Dear knows where we'll all be this night next year. Peter, it's your turn. I will try, wrote Peter, to say my prayers every night regular, and not twice one night because I don't expect to have time the next, like I did the night before the party, he added. I suppose you never said your prayers until we got you to go to church, said Felicity, who had had no hand in inducing Peter to go to church, but had stoutly opposed it, as recorded in the first volume of our family history. I did too, said Peter, and Jane taught me to say my prayers. Ma hadn't time, being his father had run away. Ma had to wash at night, same as in daytime. I shall learn to cook, wrote the story girl, frowning. You'd better resolve not to make puddings of, began Felicity, then stopped as suddenly as if she'd bitten off the rest of her sentence and swallowed it. Cecily had nudged her, so she'd probably remembered the story girl's threat that she would never tell another story if she was ever twitted with the pudding she had made from sawdust. But we all knew what Felicity had started to say, and the story girl dealt her a most uncousinly glance. I will try not to cry because mother won't starch my aprons, wrote Sarah Ray. Better resolve not to cry about anything, said Dan kindly. Sarah Ray shook her head forlornly. That would be too hard to keep. There are times when I have to cry. It's a relief. Not to the folks who have to hear you, muttered Dan aside to Cecily. Oh, hush, whispered Cecily back. Don't go and hurt her feelings the last night of the old year. Is it my turn again? Well, I'll resolve not to worry because my hair is not curly. But, oh, I'll never be able to help wishing it was. Why don't you curl it as you used to do then? asked Anne. You know very well that I've never put my hair up in curl papers since the time Peter was dying of the measles, said Cecily reproachfully. I resolved then I wouldn't because I wasn't sure it was quite right. I will keep my fingernails neat and clean, I wrote. There, that's four resolutions. I'm not going to make any more. Four's enough. I shall always think twice before I speak, wrote Felix. That's an awful waste of time, commented Dan. But I guess you'll need to if you're always going to say what you think. I'm going to stop with three, said Peter. I will have all the good times I can, wrote the story girl. That's what I call sensible, said Dan. It's a very easy resolution to keep anyhow, commented Felix. I shall try to like reading the Bible, wrote Sarah Ray. You ought to like reading the Bible without trying to, exclaimed Felicity. If you had to read seven chapters of it every time you were naughty, 
I don't believe you would like it either, retorted Sarah Ray with a flash of spirit. I shall try to believe only half of what I hear, was Cecily's concluding resolution. But which half, scoffed Dan. The best half, said sweet Cecily simply. I'll try to obey mother always, wrote Sarah Ray with a tremendous sigh, as if she fully realized the difficulty of keeping such a resolution. And that's all I'm going to make. Felicity has only made one, said the story girl. I think it better to make just one and keep it than make a lot and break them, said Felicity loftily. She had the last word on the subject, for it was time for Sarah Ray to go, and our circle broke up. Sarah and Felix departed, and we watched them down the lane in the moonlight, Sarah walking demurely in one runner track, and Felix stalking grimly along in the other. I fear the romantic beauty of that silver shining night was entirely thrown away on my mischievous brother. And it was, as I remember it, a most exquisite night, a white poem, a frosty, starry lyric of light. It was one of those nights on which one might fall asleep and dream happy dreams of gardens of mirth and song, feeling all the while through one's sleep the soft splendor and radiance of the white moon world outside as one hears soft, faraway music sounding through the thoughts and words that are born of it. As a matter of fact, however, Cecily dreamed that night that she saw three full moons in the sky and wakened up crying with the horror of it. That was New Year's Resolutions, read by Leslie Betts. Our next short story was written in 1910 and is called Uncle Richard's New Year's Dinner. It's about having to deal with those grumpy old uncles we all seem to find sitting at the dinner table this time of year. It's read by Kathy Chepesky. Prissy Baker was in Oscar Miller's store New Year's morning buying matches. For New Year's was not kept as a business holiday in Quincy when her uncle, Richard Baker, came in. He did not look at Prissy, nor did she wish him a happy New Year. She would not have dared. Uncle Richard had not been on speaking terms with her or her father, his only brother, for eight years. He was a big, ruddy, prosperous-looking man, an uncle to be proud of, Prissy thought wistfully, if only he were like other people's uncles, or indeed like what he used to be himself. He was the only uncle Prissy had, and when she had been a little girl, they had been great friends, but that was before the quarrel in which Prissy had had no share, to be sure, although Uncle Richard seemed to include her in his rancor. Richard Baker, so he informed Mr. Miller, was on his way to Navarre with a load of pork. I didn't intend going over until the afternoon, he said. But Joe Hemming sent word yesterday he wouldn't be buying pork after twelve today. So I have to tote my hogs over at once. I don't care about doing business New Year's morning. Should think New Year's would be pretty much the same as any other day to you, said Mr. Miller, for Richard Baker was a bachelor, with only old Mrs. Janeway to keep house for him. Well, I always like a good dinner on New Year's, said Richard Baker. It's about the only way I can celebrate. Mrs. Janeway wanted to spend the day with her son's family over at Oriental, so I was laying out to cook my own dinner. I got everything ready in the pantry last night, for I got word about the pork. I won't get back from Navarre before one o'clock, so I reckon I'll have to put up with a cold bite. After her Uncle Richard had driven away, Prissy walked thoughtfully home. 
She had planned to spend a nice lazy holiday with the new book her father had given her at Christmas and a box of candy. She did not even mean to cook a dinner, for her father had had to go to town that morning to meet a friend and would be gone the whole day. There was nobody else to cook dinner for. Prissy's mother had died when Prissy was a baby. She was her father's housekeeper, and they had jolly times together. But as she walked home, she could not help thinking about Uncle Richard. He would certainly have cold New Year cheer, enough to chill the whole coming year. She felt sorry for him, picturing him returning from Navarre, cold and hungry, to find a fireless house and an uncooked dinner in the pantry. Suddenly, an idea popped into Prissy's head. Dared she? Oh, she never could. But he would never know. There would be plenty of time. Ah, she would. Prissy hurried home, put her matches away, took a regretful peep at her unopened book, then locked the door and started up the road to Uncle Richard's house half a mile away. She meant to go and cook Uncle Richard's dinner for him, get it all beautifully ready, then slip away before he came home. He would never suspect her of it. Prissy would not have him suspect for the world. She thought he would be more likely to throw a dinner of her cooking out of doors than to eat it. Eight years before this, when Prissy had been nine years old, Richard and Irving Baker had quarreled over the division of a piece of property. The fault had been mainly on Richard's side, and that very fact made him all the more unrelenting and stubborn. He had never spoken to his brother since, and he declared he never would. Prissy and her father felt very badly over it, but Uncle Richard did not seem to feel badly at all. To all appearances, he had completely forgotten that there were such people in the world as his brother Irving and his niece Prissy. Prissy had no trouble in breaking into Uncle Richard's house, for the woodshed door was unfastened. She tripped into the hostile kitchen with rosy cheeks and mischief sparkling in her eyes. This was an adventure. This was fun. She would tell her father all about it when he came home at night, and what a laugh they would have. There was still a good fire in the stove, and in the pantry, Prissy found the dinner in its raw state. A fine roast of fresh pork, potatoes, cabbage, turnips, and the ingredients of a raisin pudding— for Richard Baker was fond of raisin puddings and could make them as well as Mrs. Janeway could, if that was anything to boast of. In a short time, the kitchen was full of bubbling and hissings and appetizing odors. Prissy enjoyed herself hugely, and the raisin pudding, which she had rather doubtfully mixed up, behaved itself beautifully. It was all coming together as the clock struck twelve. Uncle Richard said he'd be home by one, so I'll set the table now, dish up the dinner, and leave it where it will keep warm until he gets here. Then I'll slip away home. I'd like to see his face when he steps in. I suppose he'll think one of the Jenner girls across the street has cooked his dinner. Prissy soon had the table set, and she was just peppering the turnips when a gruff voice behind her said, Well, well, what does this mean? Prissy whirled around as if she had been shot. And there stood Uncle Richard in the woodshed door. Poor Prissy. She could not have looked or felt more guilty if Uncle Richard had caught her robbing his desk. She did not drop the turnips for a wonder, 
but she was too confused to set them down. So she stood there holding them, her face crimson, her heart thumping, and a horrible choking in her throat. I, I came up to cook your dinner for you, Uncle Richard. I heard you say in the store that Mrs. Janeway had gone home and that you had nobody to cook your New Year's dinner for you. So I thought I'd come and do it, but I meant to slip away before you came home. Poor Prissy felt that she would never get to the end of her explanation. Would Uncle Richard be angry? Would he order her from the house? It was very kind of you, said Uncle Richard dryly. It's a wonder your father let you come. Father was not home, but I am sure he would not have prevented me if he had been. Father has no hard feelings against you, Uncle Richard. Hm, said Uncle Richard. Well, since you've cooked the dinner, you must stop and help me eat it. It smells good, I must say. Mrs. Janeway always burns pork when she roasts it. Sit down, Prissy. I'm hungry. They sat down. Prissy felt quite giddy and breathless and could hardly eat for excitement. But Uncle Richard had evidently brought home a good appetite from Navarre, and he did full justice to his New Year's dinner. He talked to Prissy, too, quite kindly and politely. And when the meal was over, he said slowly, I'm much obliged to you, Prissy, and I don't mind owning to you that I'm sorry for my share in the quarrel and have wanted for a long time to be friends with your father again, but I was too ashamed and proud to make the first advance. You can tell him so for me, if you like, and if he's willing to let bygones be bygones, tell him I'd like him to come up here with you tonight when he gets home and spend the evening with me. Oh, he will come. I know, cried Prissy joyfully. He has felt so badly about not being friendly with you, Uncle Richard. I'm as glad as can be. Prissy ran impulsively around the table and kissed Uncle Richard. He looked up at his tall, girlish niece with a smile of pleasure. You're a good girl, Prissy, and a kind-hearted one, too, or you'd never have come up here to cook a dinner for a crabbed old uncle who deserves to eat cold dinners for his stubbornness. It made me cross today when folks wished me a happy new year. It seemed like a mockery when I hadn't a soul belonging to me to make it happy. But this new year's has brought me happiness already. And I believe it will be a happy year all the way through. Indeed it will, laughed Prissy. I'm so happy now I could sing. I believe it was an inspiration. My idea of coming up here to cook your dinner for you. You must promise to come and cook my New Year's dinner for me every New Year we live near enough together, said Uncle Richard, and Prissy promised. That was Uncle Richard's New Year's dinner, read by Kathy Chapesky. Our next short story by Lucy Maud Montgomery was published in 1905 and is called Bertie's New Year. It's about those less fortunate than ourselves, but who never seem to mind, even though they are often overlooked. It's read by Carol Peterson. He stood on the sagging doorstep and looked out on the snowy world. His hands were clasped behind him, and his thin face wore a thoughtful, puzzled look. The door behind him opened jerkingly, and a scowling woman came out with a pan of dishwater in her hand. "'Ain't you gone yet, Bert?' she said sharply. "'What in the world are you hanging around for?' "'It's early yet,' said Bertie cheerfully. I thought maybe George Fraser'd be along and I'd get a lift as far as the store. Well, I never saw such laziness. 
No wonder old Samson won't keep you longer than the holidays if you're no smarter than that. Goodness, if I don't settle that boy. As the sound of fretful crying came from the kitchen behind her. What's wrong with William John? asked Bertie. Why, he wants to go out coasting with those Robinson boys. But he can't. He hasn't got any mittens. And he would catch his death of cold again. Her voice seemed to imply that William John had died of cold several times already. Bertie looked soberly down at his old, well-darned mittens. It was very cold, and he would have a great many errands to run. He shivered and looked up at his aunt's hard face as she stood wiping her dishpan with a grim frown which boded no good to that discontented William John. Then he suddenly pulled off his mittens and held them out. Here, he can have mine. I'll get on without them well enough. Nonsense, said Mrs. Ross, but less unkindly. The fingers would freeze off you. Don't be a goose. It's all right, persisted Bertie. I don't need them much, and William John doesn't hardly ever get out. He thrust them into her hand and ran quickly down the street, as though he feared that the keen air might make him change his mind in spite of himself. He had to stop a great many times that day to breathe on his purple hands. Still, he did not regret having lent his mittens to William John. Poor, pale, sickly little William John, who had so few pleasures. It was sunset when Bertie laid an armful of parcels down on the steps of Dr. Forbes' handsome house. His back was turned towards the big bay window at one side, and he was busy trying to warm his hands, so he did not see the two small faces looking at him through the frosty panes. "'Just look at that poor little boy, Amy,' said the taller of the two. He, "'He's almost frozen, I believe. "'Why doesn't Caroline hurry and open the door?' "'There she goes now,' said Amy. "'Edie, couldn't we coax her to let him come in and get warm? "'He looks so cold.' "'And she drew her sister out into the hall, "'where the housekeeper was taking Bertie's parcels. "'Caroline,' whispered Edith timidly, Please tell that poor little fellow to come in and, and get warm. He looks very cold. He's used to the cold, I warrant you, said the housekeeper rather impatiently. It won't hurt him. But it's Christmas week, said Edith gravely. And you know, Caroline, when Mama was here, she used to say that we ought to be particularly thoughtful of others who were not so happy or well off as we were at this time. Perhaps Edith's reference to her mother softened Caroline, for she turned to Bertie and said, cordially enough, Come in and warm yourself before you go. It's cold day. Bertie shyly followed her to the kitchen. Sit up to the fire, said Caroline, placing a chair for him, while Edith and Amy came round to the other side of the stove and watched him with friendly interest. What's your name? asked Caroline. Robert Ross, ma'am. "'Oh, you're Mrs. Ross's nephew, then,' said Caroline, breaking eggs into her cake bowl and, and whisking them deftly around. "'And you're Samson's errand boy just now. My goodness!' as the boy spread his blue hands over the fire. "'Where are your mittens, child? You're never out without mittens a day like this.' "'I lent them to William John. He hadn't any,' faltered Bertie. He did not know but that the lady might consider it a grave crime.' to be mittenless. 
No mittens? exclaimed Amy in dismay. Why, I have three pairs. And who is William John? He's my cousin, said Bertie. And he's awfully sickly. He wanted to go out to play. And he hadn't any mittens. So I lent him mine. I didn't miss them much. What kind of a Christmas did you have? We didn't have any. No Christmas, said Amy, quite overcome. Oh, well, I suppose you're going to have a good time on New Year's instead. Bertie shook his head. No, I guess not. We never have it different from other times. Amy was silent from sheer amazement. Edith understood better, and she changed the subject. Have you any brothers or sisters, Bertie? No, returned Bertie cheerfully. I guess there's enough of us without that. I must be going now. I'm very much obliged to you. Edith slipped from the room as he spoke and met him again at the door. She held out a pair of warm-looking mittens. These are for William John, she said simply, so that you can have your own. They are a pair of mine, which are too big for me. I know Papa will say it's all right. Goodbye, Bertie. Goodbye, and... And thank you, stammered Bertie as the door closed. Then he hastened home to William John. That evening, Dr. Forbes noticed a peculiarly thoughtful look on Edith's face as she sat gazing into the glowing coal fire after dinner. He laid his hand on her dark curls inquiringly. What are you musing over? There was a little boy here today, began Edith. Oh, such a dear little boy, broke in Amy eagerly from the corner where she was playing with her kitten. His name was Bertie Ross. He brought up the parcels, and we asked him in to get warm. He had no mittens, and his hands were almost frozen. Oh, Papa, just think, he said he never had any Christmas or New Year at all. Poor little fellow, said the doctor. I've heard of him. Pretty hard time he has of it, I think. He was so pretty, Papa, and Edie gave him her blue mittens for William John. The plot deepens. Who is William John? Oh, a cousin or something, didn't he say, Edie? Anyway, he is sick, and he wanted to go coasting, and Bertie gave him his mittens. And I suppose he never had any Christmas either. There are plenty who haven't, said the doctor, taking up his paper with a sigh. Well, girlies, you seem interested in this little fellow, so if you like, you may invite him and his cousin to take dinner with you on New Year's night. Oh, Papa, said Edith, her eyes shining like stars. The doctor laughed. Write him a nice little note of invitation. You are the lady of the house, you know, and I'll see that he gets it tomorrow. And this was how it came to pass that Bertie received the next day his first invitation to dine out. He read the little note through three times in order fully to take in its contents and then went around the rest of the day in deep abstraction as though he was trying to decide some very important question. It was with the same expression that he opened the door at home in the evening. His aunt was stirring some oatmeal mush on the stove. Is that you, Bert? She spoke sharply. She always spoke sharply, even when not intending it. It had grown to be a habit. Yes'm, said Bertie meekly as he hung up his cap. I suppose you've only got one day more at the store, said Mrs. Ross. Samson didn't say anything about keeping you longer, did he? No, he said he couldn't. I, I asked him. Well, I didn't expect he would. 
You'll have a holiday on New Year's anyhow. Whether you'll have anything to eat or not is a different question. I have an invitation to dinner, said Bertie timidly. Me and William John. It's from Dr. Forbes' little girls, the ones that gave me the mittens. He handed her the little note, and Mrs. Ross stooped down and read it by the fitful gleam of light which came from the cracked stove. Well, you can please yourself, she said, as she handed it back, but William John couldn't go if he had ten invitations. He caught cold coasting yesterday. I told him he would, but he was bound to go, and now he's laid up for a week. Listen to him barking in the bedroom there. Well, then, I won't go either, said Bertie with a sigh. It might be of relief, or might be of disappointment. I wouldn't go there all alone. You're a goose, said his aunt. They wouldn't eat you. But as I said, please yourself. Anyhow, hold your tongue about it to William John, or you'll have him crying and bawling to go too. The caution came too late. William John had already heard it. And when his mother went in to rub his chest with liniment, she found him with the ragged quilt over his head, crying. Come, William John, I want to rub you. I don't want to be rubbed. Go away, sobbed William John. I heard you out there. You needn't think I didn't. Bertie's going to Dr. Forbes to dinner and I can't go. Well, you've only yourself to thank for it, returned his mother. If you hadn't persisted in going out coasting yesterday when I wanted you to stay in, you'd have been able to go to Dr. Forbes. Little boys who won't do as they're told always get into trouble. Stop crying now. I dare say if Bertie goes, they'll send you some candy or something. But William John refused to be comforted. He cried himself to sleep that night, and when Bertie went in to see him next morning, he found him sitting up in bed with his eyes red and swollen, and the faded quilt drawn up around his pinched face. Well, William John, how are you? I ain't any better, replied William John mournfully. I suppose you'll have a great time tomorrow night, Bertie. Oh, I'm not going since you can't, said Bertie cheerily. He thought this would comfort William John, but it had exactly the opposite effect. William John had cried until he could cry no more, but he turned around and sobbed. There now, he said in tearless despair. That's just what I expected. I did suppose you couldn't go. You wouldn't tell me about it. You're mean as mean can be. Come now, William John. Don't be so cross. I thought you'd rather have me home, but I'll go if you want me to. Honest now? Yes, honest. I'll go anywhere to please you. I must be off to the store now. Goodbye. Thus committed, Bertie took his courage in both hands and went. The next evening at dusk found him standing at Dr. Forbes' door with a very violently beating heart. He was carefully dressed in his well-worn best suit and a neat white collar. The frosty air had crimsoned his cheeks, and his hair was curling round his face. Caroline opened the door and showed him into the parlor, where Edith and Amy were eagerly awaiting him. Happy New Year, Bertie, cried Amy. And, but, why, where is William John? He couldn't come, answered Bertie anxiously. He was afraid he might not be welcome without William John. He's real sick. 
He caught cold and has to stay in bed, but he wanted to come awful bad. Oh, dear me. Poor William John, said Amy in a disappointed tone. But all further remarks were cut short by the entrance of Dr. Forbes. How do you do, he said, giving Bertie's hand a hearty shake. But where is the other little fellow my girls were expecting? Bertie patiently reaccounted for William John's non-appearance. It's a bad time for colds, said the doctor, sitting down and attacking the fire. I dare say, though, you have to run so fast these days that a cold couldn't catch you. I suppose you'll soon be leaving Samson's. He told me he didn't need you after the holiday season was over. What are you going at next? Have you anything in view? Bertie shook his head sorrowfully. No, sir. But, he added more cheerfully, I guess I'll find something if I hunt around lively. I almost always do. He forgot his shyness. His face flushed hopefully, and he looked straight at the doctor with his bright, earnest eyes. The doctor poked the fire energetically and looked very wise. But just then the girls came up and carried Bertie off to display their holiday gifts. And there was a fur cap and a pair of mittens for him. He wondered whether he was dreaming. And here's a picture book for William John, said Amy. And there's a sled out in the kitchen for him. Oh, there's the dinner bell. I'm awfully hungry. Papa says that is my normal condition. But I don't know what that means. As for that dinner, Bertie might sometimes have seen such a repast in delightful dreams, but certainly not out of them. It was a feast to be dated from. When the plum pudding came on, the doctor, who had been notably silent, leaned back in his chair, placed his fingertips together, and looked critically at Bertie. So, Mr. Samson can't keep you. Bertie's face sobered at once. He had almost forgotten his responsibilities. No, sir. He says I'm too small for the heavy work. Well, you are rather small, but no doubt you will grow. Boys have a queer habit of doing that. I think you know how to make yourself useful. I need a boy here to run errands and look after my horse. If you like, I'll try you. You can live here and go to school. I sometimes hear of places for boys in my rounds, and the first good one that will suit you, I'll bespeak for you. How will that do? Oh, sir, you are too good, said Bertie with a choke in his voice. Well, that's settled, said the doctor genially. Come on Monday then, and perhaps we can do something for that other little chap, William or, or John or, or whatever his name is. Will you have some more pudding, Bertie? No, thank you, said Bertie. Pudding indeed. He could not have eaten another mouthful after such wonderful and unexpected good fortune. After dinner, they played games and cracked nuts and roasted apples until the clock struck nine. Then Bertie got up to go. Off, are you? said the doctor, looking up from his paper. Well, I'll expect you on Monday. Remember. Yes, sir, said Bertie happily. He was not likely to forget. As he went out, Amy came through the hall with a red sled. Here is William John's present. I've tied all the other things on so they can't fall off. Edith was at the door with a parcel. Here are some nuts and candies for William John, she said. And tell him, we all wish him a happy new year. Thank you, said Bertie. I've had a 
splendid time. I'll tell William John. Good night. He stepped out. It was frostier than ever. The snow crackled and snapped. The stars were keen and bright. But to Bertie, running down the street with William John's sled thumping merrily behind him, the world was aglow with rosy hope and promise. He was quite sure he could never forget this wonderful new year. That was Bertie's New Year, read by Carol Peterson. Our next short story is entitled Ida's New Year's Cake. It was also published in 1905 and is about those infernal screw-ups that always seem to happen to us when we can least deal with them. It is read by Leslie Betts. Mary Craig and Sarah Reed and Josie Pye had all flocked into Ida Mitchell's room at their boarding house to condole with each other because none of them was able to go home for New Year's. Mary and Josie had been home for Christmas, so they didn't really feel so badly off. But Ida and Sarah hadn't even that consolation. Ida was a third-year student at the Clifton Academy. She had holidays and nowhere, so she mournfully affirmed to spend them. At home, three brothers and a sister were down with the measles, and as Ida had never had them, she could not go there, and the news had come too late for her to make any other arrangements. Mary and Josie were clerks in a Clifton bookstore, and Sarah was stenographer in a Clifton lawyer's office, and they were all jolly and thoughtless and very fond of one another. This will be the first New Year's I've ever spent away from home, sighed Sarah, nibbling chocolate fudge. It does make me so blue to think of it, and not even a holiday. I'll have to go to work just the same. Now Ida here, she doesn't really need sympathy. She has holidays, a whole fortnight, and nothing to do but enjoy them. Holidays are dismal things when you've nowhere to holiday, said Ida mournfully. The time drags horribly. But never mind, girls, I've a plummy bit of news for you. I'd a letter from Mother today, and bless the dear woman, she is sending me a cake, a New Year's cake, a great, big, spicy, mellow, delicious fruit cake. It will be along tomorrow, and girls, we'll celebrate when it comes. I've asked everybody in the house up to my room for New Year's Eve, and we'll have a royal good time. How splendid, said Mary. There's nothing I like more than a slice of real, countrified, homemade fruitcake where they don't scrimp on eggs or butter or raisins. You'll give me a good big piece, won't you, Ida? As much as you can eat, promised Ida. I can warrant Mother's fruitcake. Yes, we'll have a jamboree. Miss Monroe has promised to come in, too. She says she has a weakness for fruitcake. <gasps> Breathed all of the girls. Miss Monroe was their idol, whom they had to be content to worship at a distance as a general thing. She was a clever journalist who worked on a paper and was reputed to be writing a book. The girls felt they were highly privileged to be boarding in the same house and counted that day lost on which they did not receive a business-like nod or an absent-minded smile from Ms. Monroe. If she ever had time to speak to one of them about the weather, that fortunate one put on airs for a week. And now to think that she had actually promised to drop into Ida's room on New Year's Eve and eat fruitcake.
There goes that funny little namesake of yours, Ida, said Josie, who was sitting by the window. She seems to be staying in town over the holidays, too. Wonder why? Perhaps she doesn't belong anywhere. She really is a most forlorn-appearing little mortal. There were two Ida Mitchells attending the Clifton Academy. The other Ida was a plain, quiet, pale-faced little girl of 15 who was in the second year. Beyond that, none of the third-year Ida Mitchell's set knew anything about her or tried to find out. She must be very poor, said Ida carelessly. She dresses so shabbily and she always looks so pinched and subdued. She boards in a little house out on Marlborough Road, and I pity her if she has to spend her holidays there for a more dismal place I never saw. I was there once on the trail of a book I had lost. Oh, going girls? Well, don't forget tomorrow night. Ida spent the next day decorating her room and watching for the arrival of her cake. It hadn't come by tea time, and she concluded to go down to the express office and investigate. It would be dreadful if that cake didn't turn up in time with all the girls and Ms. Monroe coming in. Ida felt that she would be mortified to death. Inquiry at the express office discovered two things. A box had come in for Miss Ida Mitchell Clifton, and said box had been delivered to Miss Ida Mitchell Clifton. One of our clerks said he knew you personally, boarded next door to you, and he'd take it round himself, the manager informed her. There must be some mistake, said Ida in perplexity. I don't know any of the clerks here. <gasps> oh, why, there's another Ida Mitchell in town. Can it be possible my cake has gone to her? The manager thought it very possible and offered to send around and see. But Ida said it was on her way home and she would call herself. At the dismal little house on Marlborough Road, she was sent up three flights of stairs to the other Ida Mitchell's small hall bedroom. The other Ida Mitchell opened the door for her. Behind her on the table was the cake. Such a fine, big brown cake with raisins sticking out all over it. Why, how do you do, Miss Mitchell? exclaimed the other Ida with shy pleasure. Come in. I didn't know you were in town. It's real good of you to come and see me. And just see what I've had sent to me. Isn't it a beauty? I was so surprised when it came and oh, so glad. I was feeling so blue and lonesome as if I hadn't a friend in the world. I, I, yes, I was crying when that cake came. It has just made the world over for me. Do sit down and I'll cut you a piece. I'm sure you're as fond of fruitcake as I am. Ida sat down in a chair, feeling bewildered and awkward. This was a nice predicament. How could she tell that other Ida that the cake didn't belong to her? The poor thing was so delighted and, oh, what a bare, lonely little room. The big, luxurious cake seemed to emphasize the bareness and loneliness. Who, who sent it to you? She asked lamely. It must have been Mrs. Henderson, because there's nobody else who would, answered the other Ida. Two years ago, I was going to school in Trenton, and I boarded with her. When I left her to come to Clifton, she told me she would send me a cake at Christmas. Well, I expected that cake last year, and it didn't come. I can't tell you how disappointed I was. You'll think me very childish, but I was so lonely with no home to go to like the other girls. But she sent it this year, you see. It is so nice to think that somebody has remembered me at New Year's. It isn't the cake itself. It's the thought behind it. 
It has just made all the difference in the world. There, just sample it, Miss Mitchell. The other Ida cut a generous slice from the cake and passed it to her guest. Her eyes were shining and her cheeks were flushed. She was really a very sweet-looking little thing, not a bit like her usual pale, timid self. Ida ate the cake slowly. What was she to do? She couldn't tell the other Ida the truth about the cake. But the girl she had asked him to help eat it that very evening, and Miss Monroe. Oh, dear, it was too bad. But it couldn't be helped. She wouldn't blot out that light on the other Ida's face for anything. Of course, she would find out the truth in time, probably after she had written to thank Mrs. Henderson for the cake. But meanwhile, she would have enjoyed the cake, and the supposed kindness back of it would tide her over in her New Year loneliness. It's delicious, said Ida heartily, swallowing her own disappointment with the cake. I'm, I'm glad I happened to drop in as I was passing. Ida hoped that speech didn't come under the head of a fib. So am I, said the other Ida brightly. Oh, I've been so lonesome and downhearted this week. I'm so alone, you see. There isn't anybody to care. Father died three years ago, and I don't remember my mother at all. There is nobody but myself, and it is dreadfully lonely at times. When the academy is open and I have my lessons to study, I don't mind so much, but the holidays take all the courage out of me. We should have fraternized more this week, smiled Ida, regretting that she hadn't thought of it before. I couldn't go home because of the measles, and I've moped a lot. We might have spent the time together and had a real nice jolly holiday. The other Ida blushed with delight. I'd love to be friends with you, she said slowly. I've often thought I'd like to know you. Isn't it odd that we have the same name? It was so nice of you to come and see me. I, I'd love to have you come often. I will, said Ida heartily. Perhaps you will stay the evening, suggested the other Ida. I've asked some of the girls who board here in to have some cake. I'm so glad to be able to give them something. They've all been so good to me. They're all clerks in stores and some of them are so tired and lonely. It's so nice to have a pleasure to share with them. Won't you stay? I'd like to, laughed Ida, but I have some guests of my own invited in for tonight. I must hurry home for they will most surely be waiting for me. She laughed again as she thought what else the guests would be waiting for. But her face was sober enough as she walked home. But I'm glad I left the cake with her, she said resolutely. Poor little thing. It means so much to her. It meant only a good feed, as Josie says to me. I'm simply going to make it my business next term to be good friends with the other Ida Mitchell. I'm afraid we third-year girls are very self-centered and selfish. And I know what I'll do. I'll write to Abby Morton in Trenton to send me Mrs. Henderson's address, and I'll write her a letter to ask her not to let Ida know that she didn't send the cake. Ida went into a confectionery store and invested what Josie Pye was wont to call ready-to-wear eatables, fancy cakes, fruit, and candies. When she reached her room, she found it full of expectant girls with Ms. Monroe enthroned in the midst of them. Ms. Monroe, in a wonderful evening dress of black lace and yellow silk with roses in her hair and pearls on her neck, all dawned in honor of Ida's little celebration. I won't say that, just for a moment, Ida didn't regret 
that she had given up her cake. Good evening, Miss Mitchell, cried Mary Craig gaily. Walk right in and make yourself at home in your own room, do. We all met in the hall and knocked and knocked. Finally, Miss Monroe came, so we made bold to walk right in. Where is the only and original fruitcake, Ida? My mouth has been watering all day. The other Ida Mitchell is probably entertaining her friends at this moment with my fruitcake, said Ida with a little laugh. Then she told the whole story. I'm so sorry to disappoint you, she concluded, but I simply couldn't tell that poor lonely child that the cake wasn't intended for her. I've brought all the goodies home with me that I could buy, and we'll have to do the best we can without the fruitcake. Their best proved to be a very good thing. They had a jolly New Year's Eve, and Ms. Monroe sparkled and entertained most brilliantly. They kept their celebration up until 12 to welcome the New Year in, and then they bade Ida good night. But Ms. Monroe lingered for a moment behind the others to say softly, I want to tell you how good and sweet I think it was of you to give up your cake to the other Ida. That little bit of unselfishness was a good guerdon for your new year. And Ida, radiant-faced at this praise from her idol, answered heartily, I'm afraid I'm anything but unselfish, Miss Monroe, but I mean to try to be more this coming year. And think a little about the girls outside of my own little set, who may be lonely or discouraged. The other Ida Mitchell isn't going to have to depend on that fruitcake alone for comfort and encouragement for the next 12 months. That was Ida's New Year's Cake, read by Leslie Betts. We didn't want to end our show today without giving you at least one poignant remembrance of why Lucy Maud Montgomery remains not just famous, but a classic writer of world literature, continually found in print on library shelves everywhere and forever in the hands of people, young and old, the world over. So we ransacked our own library and came up with what we think is one of the best New Year's stories that we've read in a long, long time. Here's New Year's Eve at the Light, taken from Anne's House of Dreams, published in 1917 during one of the world's darkest times at the height of the Great War. It's read by Kathy Chepesky. The Green Gables folk went home after Christmas, Marilla under solemn covenant to return for a month in the spring. More snow came before New Year's and the harbour froze over, but the gulf still was free beyond the white imprisoned fields. The last day of the old year was one of those bright, cold, dazzling winter days which bombard us with their brilliancy and command our admiration, but never our love. The sky was sharp and blue, the snow diamonds sparkled insistently, the stark trees were bare and shameless, with a kind of brazen beauty, the hills shot assaulting lances of crystal, even the shadows were sharp and stiff and clear-cut, as no proper shadows should be. Everything that was handsome seemed ten times handsomer and less attractive in the glaring splendor, and everything that was ugly seemed ten times uglier, and everything was either handsome or ugly. There was no soft blending or kind obscurity or elusive mistiness in that searching glitter. The only things that held their own individuality were the firs, for the fir is the tree of mystery and shadow and yields never to the encroachments of crude radiance. But finally, the day began to realize that she was growing old. Then a certain pensiveness fell over her beauty, which dimmed yet intensified it. Sharp angles, glittering points melted away into curves and enticing gleams. 
the white harbor put on soft grays and pinks, the faraway hills turned amethyst. The old year is going away beautifully, said Anne. She and Leslie and Gilbert were on their way to the Four Winds Point, having plotted with Captain Jim to watch the new year in at the light. The sun had set, and in the southwestern sky hung Venus, glorious and golden, having drawn as near to her earth sister as is possible for her. For the first time, Anne and Gilbert saw the shadow cast by that brilliant star of evening, that faint mysterious shadow, never seen save when there is white snow to reveal it, and then only with averted vision, vanishing when you gaze at it directly. It's like the spirit of a shadow, isn't it? whispered Anne. You can see it so plainly haunting your side when you look ahead, but when you turn and look at it, it's gone. I have heard that you can see the shadow of Venus only once in a lifetime, and that within a year of seeing it, your life's most wonderful gift will come to you, said Leslie. But she spoke rather hardly. Perhaps she thought that even the shadow of Venus could bring her no gift of life. Anne smiled in the soft twilight. She felt quite sure what the mystic shadow promised her. They found Marshall Elliot at the lighthouse. At first, Anne felt inclined to resent the intrusion of this long-haired, long-bearded eccentric into the familiar little circle. But Marshall Elliot soon proved his legitimate claim to membership in the household of Joseph. He was a witty, intelligent, well-read man, rivaling Captain Jim himself in the knack of telling a good story. They were all glad when he agreed to watch the old year out with them. Captain Jim's small nephew Joe had come down to spend New Year's with his great uncle and had fallen asleep on the sofa with the first mate, curled up in a huge golden ball at his feet. Ain't he a dear little man, said Captain Jim gloatingly. I do love to watch a little child asleep, Mistress Blythe. It's the most beautiful sight in the world, I reckon. Joe does love to get down here for a night because I have him sleep with me. At home he has to sleep with the other two boys and he doesn't like it. Why can't I sleep with father, Uncle Jim, he says. Everybody in the Bible slept with their fathers. As for the questions he asks, the minister himself couldn't answer them. They fair swamp me. Uncle Jim, if I wasn't me, who'd I be? And Uncle Jim, what would happen if God died? He fired them two off at me tonight, afore he went to sleep. As for his imagination, it sails away from everything. He makes up the most remarkable yarns, and then his mother shuts him in the closet for telling stories. And he sits down and makes up another one, and has it ready to relate to her when she lets him out. He had one for me when he come down tonight. Uncle Jim, he says, solemn as a tombstone, I had a venture in the glen today. Yes, what was it, says I expecting something quite startling, but nowise prepared for what I really got. I met a wolf in the street, says he, enormous wolf, with a big red mouth and awful long teeth, Uncle Jim. I didn't know there was any wolves up at the glen, says I. Oh, he come there from far, far away, says Joe, and I thought he was going to eat me up, Uncle Jim. Were you scared, says I? No, because I had a big gun, says Joe. And I shot the wolf dead, Uncle Jim, solid dead. And then he went up to heaven and bid God, says he. Well, I was fair staggered, Mistress Blythe. The hours bloomed into mirth around the driftwood fire. Captain Jim told tales and Marshall Elliot sang old Scotch ballads in a fine tenor voice. 
Finally, Captain Jim took down his old brown fiddle from the wall and began to play. He had a tolerable knack of fiddling, which all appreciated save the first mate, who sprang from the sofa as if he had been shot, emitted a shriek of protest, and fled wildly up the stairs. Can't cultivate near for music in that cat know-how, said Captain Jim. He won't stay long enough to learn to like it. When we got the organ up at the Glen Church, old Elder Richards bounced up from his seat the minute the organist began to play and scuttled down the aisle and out of the church at the rate of no man's business. It reminded me so strong of the first mate tearing loose as soon as I begin to fiddle that I come nearer to laughing out loud in church than I ever did before or since. There was something so infectious in the rollicking tunes which Captain Jim played that very soon Marshal Elliot's feet began to twitch. He had been a noted dancer in his youth. Presently he started up and held out his hands to Leslie. Instantly she responded. Round and round the firelit room they circled with a rhythmic grace that was wonderful. Leslie danced like one inspired. The wild, sweet abandon of the music seemed to have entered into and possessed her. Anne watched her in fascinated admiration. She had never seen her like this. All the innate richness and colour and charm of her nature seemed to have broken loose and overflowed in crimson cheek and glowing eye and grace of motion. Even the aspect of Marshall Elliot, with his long beard and hair, could not spoil the picture. On the contrary, it seemed to enhance it. Marshall Elliot looked like a Viking of elder days, dancing with one of the blue-eyed, golden-haired daughters of the Northland. The purtiest dancing I ever saw, and I've seen some in my time, declared Captain Jim, when at last the bow fell from his tired hand. Leslie dropped into her chair, laughing, breathless. I love dancing, she said apart to Anne. I haven't danced since I was 16, but I love it. The music seems to run through my veins like quicksilver and I forget everything, everything except the delight of keeping time to it. There isn't any floor beneath me or walls about me or roof over me. I'm floating amid the stars. Captain Jim hung his fiddle up in its place beside a large frame enclosing several banknotes. Is there anybody else of your acquaintance who can afford to hang his walls with banknotes for pictures, he asked. There's twenty ten-dollar notes there, not worth the glass over them. They're old Bank of Prince Edward Island notes. Had them by me when the bank failed, and I had them framed and hung up, partly as a reminder not to put your trust in banks, and partly to give me a real luxurious millionaire feeling. Hello, matey, he shouted upstairs towards the first mate before lowering his voice. Don't be scared. You can come back now. The music and revelry is over for tonight. The old year has just another hour to stay with us. I've seen 76 New Year's come in over that gulf yonder, Mistress Blythe. You'll see a hundred, said Marshal Elliot. Captain Jim shook his head. No, and I don't want to. At least, I think I don't. Death grows friendlier as we grow older. Not that one of us really wants to die, though, Marshal. Tennyson spoke truth when he said that. There's old Mrs. Wallace up at the Glen. She's had heaps of trouble all her life, poor soul, and she's lost almost everyone she cared about. She's always saying that she'll be glad when her time comes, and she doesn't want to sojourn any longer in this veil of tears. But when she takes a sick spell, there's a fuss. Doctors from town and a trained nurse and enough medicine to kill a dog. 
Life may be a veil of tears, all right, but there are some folks who enjoy weeping, I reckon. They spent the old year's last hour quietly around the fire. A few minutes before twelve, Captain Jim rose and opened the door. We must let the new year in, he said. Outside was a fine blue night. A sparkling ribbon of moonlight garlanded the gulf. Inside the bar, the harbour shone like a pavement of pearl. They stood before the door and waited. Captain Jim, with his ripe, full experience. Marshal Elliot, in his vigorous but empty middle life. Gilbert and Anne, with their precious memories and exquisite hopes. Leslie, with her record of starved years and her hopeless future. The clock on the little shelf above the fireplace struck twelve. Welcome, New Year, said Captain Jim, bowing low as the last stroke died away. I wish you all the best year of your lives, mates. I reckon that whatever the new year brings us will be the best the great captain has for us. And somehow or other, we'll all make port in a good harbour. That was New Year's Eve at the Light, written by Lucy Maud Montgomery and read by Kathy Chepesky. That about does it for us today. We hope you enjoyed our five stories, all written by Lucy Maud Montgomery, one of the world's great authors of the last century. Not too surprisingly, those five stories have held up for more than a hundred years, through good times and bad, through moments of great prosperity, and moments of even greater despair. So whatever the past year has come to mean, or whatever hopes you have for the coming year, remember it's sometimes a good idea to just walk over to that bookshelf that all civilized people keep for themselves somewhere in their home, and simply sit down and read a short story, a novel, a biography, almost anything. It does a soul good whether you live in a little global village like Barry's Bay or in a far-off place like Pango Pango. Remember, nothing beats letting your imagination revel in the giddy joy of reading such classics of world literature as those written by Lucy Maud Montgomery. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for Leslie Betts, Kathy Chepesky, Carol Peterson, the rest of the Apiongo Readers Theatre, and for our producer of the Apiongo line, Barry Conway, We wish you a very happy and thoroughly prosperous new year. Good day, and God bless.